they have an anti-leader. And that's really powerful. And I think in years past, um, Democrats may have been more sensitive about looking divided, but they're overall united in trying to defeat Trump. It's clear that the only playbook for Republican candidates in both congressional and gubernatorial elections is to support President Trump. We're not seeing people who are running for re-election <laughs> criticize Trump. That, that is not uh, what it's going to help you win. You do see some squirming. So uh, anybody putting their hope and sending people to the Republican side of D.C. that'll reclaim the party away from Trump, wouldn't be, that wouldn't be a wise gamble. I'm Martine Powers, and this is the final episode of How to Flip the House, a miniseries about midterm elections from The Washington Post's Can He Do That podcast. For the last few days, we've been telling stories about critical midterm elections, 1994, 2006, and 2010, the three times in the last six decades when the House of Representatives has changed parties. And we wanted to get a sense of how those themes and takeaways from those past midterm elections are reappearing as we start barreling toward November 2018. So we sat down with national political reporter Amy Gardner and with Eugene Scott, who writes about identity politics for one of the Post's political blogs, The Fix. It was an interesting day to have this conversation because Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had just won her primary in New York, a 28-year-old socialist beating out Congressman Joe Crowley, a 20-year incumbent and chair of the House Democratic Caucus. So that was big. And then, as soon as we sat down in the studio, we all got a buzz on our phones. A report was coming in saying that Justice Kennedy of the Supreme Court was going to resign. That's a decision that could have huge implications for the midterms and something that could potentially galvanize both Republicans and Democrats. So there's a lot to discuss. But I wanted to start earlier. I wanted to start by thinking about the first episode in this series, 1994 and the Republican Revolution. I want to start by actually talking about Newt Gingrich and the 1994 Republican Revolution. What I feel like I've learned from that election is that not only was it a conflict between Republicans and Democrats and Republicans trying to take over the House, but also like an internal conflict between more establishment Republicans and this like fringe element of the Republican Party led by Newt Gingrich that ended up taking over and being like the leader of the Republican Party. Bipartisanship shouldn't mean that Republicans roll over while Democrats get what they want. A few years before the 94 election cycle, Newt won the party's number two leadership position, Minority Whip. He beat out a more establishment Republican, and he promised to usher in an era of bolder, more assertive GOP leadership. And it was not just an upset, it was kind of the beginning of a revolution. And so he became the architect of the Republican strategy from there forward. And I just find that really interesting because to me, it seems like that's a thing that's happening in the midterms right now with the Democratic Party, that there is this sort of identity crisis between our Democrats, the the party of, of Nancy Pelosi, or our Democrats 
something other than that. And I was curious to hear a little bit about how you all have been seeing that play out over the past few months. Well, I mean, a couple of observations come to mind. First of all, I think what 1994 taught both parties is the success that is possible from running from the outside as a party or a candidate intending to blow up government or to shake things up and to run against Washington. That's what Newt Gingrich's legacy is, as you described. And so we now see that that is a successful playbook for both parties in places. It's it's not always, it doesn't always work. Um, it seems to be working in lots of locations across the country for the Democratic Party this year, because, of course, the Republicans are in power in Washington. Uh, it's not working everywhere, but it is the certainly the driving force in the defeat Tuesday night of Joe Crowley in New York City. Yeah, definitely. I think one thing that's slightly different is that in 94, uh, the Republicans were hoping to take back power. And so everybody was running against the Democrats, whereas you now have Democrats trying to work with Democrats that are different from them to defeat Republicans. So one thing I've been very uh, fascinated by is watching how, in I guess it's New York 14, how pleasant the Democrats were comparatively uh, when working with one another, because I think ultimately both of their agendas or focuses have been on defeating the Republicans. Will Democrats ever sort of be galvanized in this election cycle around one idea of what it means to be a Democrat, you know, under one figurehead or leader, the way that everyone kind of galvanized behind Newt Gingrich? Or do you see this, these different camps within the Democratic Party continuing to have to deal with, with each other with all of those tensions included until November? I, I would be careful to overstate how galvanized the Republican Party was around Newt Gingrich. I mean, obviously, it was very successful. The contract with America was very successful. And we're not seeing that level of unity within the Democratic Party, no question. By the same token, I don't know that I would overstate just how unified the Republicans have ever been. It is a fascinating reality this year that you're getting at with your question that the Democratic Party is as divided as it is and doesn't know what it stands for and doesn't. And now with Joe Crowley's defeat, uh, someone who was openly calling himself a potential candidate for Speaker of the House without a clear sense of who might be its next generation of leadership. And we've got candidates supporting universal health care, running for the abolition of ICE, and then others running away from those statements. I mean, there, there's very, very strong divisions with this, within this party. And the primaries that we're seeing play out right now are, are showing just how divided it is and, and not giving us clues yet, at least, as to where it winds up. Indeed. And I think to your point about uh, the presence of diversity within the Republican Party, uh, we'll really see that pan out when it comes to uh, replacing Paul Ryan. And we have the Freedom Caucus. We have more establishment Republicans trying to figure out where it is that they want to take the party. If the Republican Party is unified anywhere, it tends to be the voters and their support for Donald Trump, which is still like something in the high 90 percent. But I think one of the reasons we are seeing 
seeing um, broader diversity ideologically in the Democratic Party, by definition, I think there just tends to be um, more tolerance for uh, diversity and an awareness that to be a liberal in a more rural community in Pennsylvania means something very different from being a liberal in the Bronx. And that's why we have Beto down in Texas. And that's why we have Alexandria uh, up in New York, because I think what they're trying to really communicate is that it is um, a big tent party, which is not a talking point that you see from the Republicans, that it's a big tent conservatism. Certainly not right now. Not right now. It's about being on the Trump train. Do you think that it's possible to do what it takes to to flip the House without a strong figurehead at the front of it? Well, I think what the Democratic Party right now, um, at least the base, the progressives, by definition, the grassroots attraction of it is not getting behind one individual. A lot of the failure to Clinton's presidency was the idea that it was about Clinton and perhaps not the people, fair or not, but that definitely was the perception that some people who backed Sanders and other more left candidates seem to believe. And so there's this idea that it's about the people. And so I, I'm not surprised that we aren't seeing a clear leader emerge um, on the left that everybody's rallying behind. In a lot of ways, I think that it would be a mistake for the party and its leaders to attempt to inject too much suggestion into some of these primary races because the base bristles when that happens. And where it has happened, it has in some cases caused strife within the party. There is an argument that these that these ideological battles and primary contests are healthy because they do sort of create the platform for this discussion to happen about what the party is. They're not necessarily going to resolve it, but it's going to create clarity about what voters in what parts of the country want. And, And I think that there is an argument that that's actually a healthy process, that it's good for the party to let that play out organically with the base. I agree. There are moments where I wonder if people in both parties are watching the success and the failures their party members are experiencing in other parts of the country that wouldn't work where they are. So like I I used to cover politics in Arizona and I've seen some recent polling about Democratic Congresswoman Kirsten Sinema doing really well compared to the Republicans she's facing in this Senate race. Kirsten Sinema is pretty conservative for a Democratic congressperson, and she would get a lot of heat for that from some people um, on the left there on the ground. But she has to be, I believe, as right as she is to do as well as she's doing against those people. Like, she can't take some of the stances that we've just seen happening um, on some of the coasts. And so I just wonder sometimes if these primary um, elections that you were talking about in terms of being valuable for the party as a whole help give voters a broader idea of who's in their party. I mean, I do think that there's a great question that looms in November about whether some of the candidates that we're seeing winning are taking stands that could be damaging elsewhere in the party. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who beat Joe Crowley in that New York City area district on Tuesday evening, views ICE as like the Gestapo and wants to abolish it. That's going to become a talking point for Republicans elsewhere in the country. It's not going to hurt her. That district went 20% for president, for Trump in 2016. So 
it would be seismic if that district went Republican. But could that become a talking point for Republicans elsewhere? And and does it shape the national perception of the Democratic Party? And does that it, they're just going to you know get rid of ICE and let a, a bunch of of immigrants into the country sort of without any controls or... Uh, I mean, Trump won the presidency and the border was a huge part of that. And that is going to resonate for some voters. And so how some of these positions that play out in individual races is one thing, but how they play out for how the party is perceived and how it performs nationally is is a different question, and we don't know the answer to it. One other point, going back to what you were asking about not having a leader of the party, they have an anti-leader, and that's really powerful. There is no dispute that everybody who considers themselves a base member and activist within the Democratic Party despises this president, and that's incredibly galvanizing. And so that gives this uh, that, that does give an advantage to the Democrats this cycle, notwithstanding the the sort of lack of leadership at the top, I think. And I think that approach could help Trump, um, no pun intended, uh, the challenges that you mentioned earlier about how um, some Democratic candidates will have to answer for other Democratic candidates, right? And so um, there are going to be some... Um, uh, Republican candidates and more conservative states who will tell their constituents uh, that uh, the Democrats are the party of people who want to abolish ICE, right? And so you're going to probably see some Democrats in uh, Texas and in Arizona have to come out and say, we don't want to abolish ICE. And I think in years past, um, Democrats may have been more sensitive about looking divided, but they're overall united in trying to defeat Trump. So I think there's going to be some room for that. And I think we saw earlier uh, Nancy Pelosi suggest that you say what you need to say to win. Like if you need to distance yourself a bit from me to get the win, this is the time for that. That's really interesting because um, so in our episode about 2006, one of the things that we focused on was like how Rahm Emanuel sort of recruited candidates and the kind of candidates that he was looking for and that there was this emphasis on um, people who sort of like bucked the stereotype of a Democrat. Well, he loved military veterans. He loved sheriffs and police officers, people who you could think of as being not traditional Democrats, people who you would associate more with Republican values and Republican policies. He loved the sort of tough guy thing. And it was, in a way, an attempt to send a broader message about the Democratic Party, which is we're not just a bunch of liberal, long-haired, environmental, you know, feminist. So the broader national message was Democrats are not culturally alien. But it's interesting that you're seeing now this this sort of sense of like, well, we can be that in some places. We cannot be that in other places. We're never going to be able to patch that together. So, like, we can have different kind of Democrats and that's fine. Although it's worth noting that most of those candidates who succeeded as blue dogs, which was the term of that era for the more conservative Democrats, are gone mm-hmm. because those parts of the country have gone Republican. Right. Right. I think about Mike McIntyre in North Carolina, um, and he retired, I believe, last year, um, in part because there just isn't that much room for that. And interestingly enough, we were talking about Newt Gingrich earlier. um, People forget how conservative of a Democrat Bill Clinton um, ran as and how much, ironically, Hillary Clinton had to end up paying for that with some voters. I don't think that is going to, um, when I say that, I mean the uh, let's put out 
our most conservative vision of um, a Democrat is going to be the priority in this uh, election because there's so much focus on mobilizing the base, and that's not what the base is going for. There could be a limit to what uh, is tolerable in terms of letting candidates be who they are and talk about the issues that they want to talk about to their particular districts and their bases. And even Nancy Pelosi tries to tamp down the talk of impeachment, for Mm -hmm, example, mm -hmm. because she views that as damaging. Mm -hmm. And the people who are talking about impeachment in the House, it's not damaging for them to talk about it. They're from very liberal, mostly urban districts Mm -hmm. where that is what the constituents want to hear. And that's why they're talking about it. Mm -hmm. But it's not helpful for the branding of the entire party. If you're a a swing or independent voter uh, and you think Trump is doing okay, you don't always like what he says. Do you want him to be impeached? And is that going to be a branding of the party that pushes you away from the Democrats? Maybe that's the that's the calculation right. from someone like Pelosi as she attempts to encourage caution on that topic. Right. right. But to your point for Maxine Waters crowd, that will get some people out. So perhaps the most enduring question of a midterm election is this. How should a congressional candidate position themselves in relation to the president, either a president within their own party or a president that they oppose. It's a question that we saw hashed out in the 1994 midterm election as Republicans ran attack ads equating Democratic candidates with President Bill Clinton. It's a question that we saw in 2006 and 2010, two midterms with outcomes that were widely considered backlash against President George W. Bush and President Obama. And now, when we have this highly controversial president, a president who says things on the daily that even Republicans sometimes find unpalatable, I wanted to know from Amy and Eugene, how are candidates navigating that? Amy, I want to go back to what you uh, mentioned before about the idea of an anti-hero. Um, and so in 06, um, we talked to Sarah Feinberg, who was uh, press secretary for, for Rahm Emanuel and the DCCC at the time. And she talked about how there was a sort of moment of realizing that, like, you cannot run each congressional race as its own district. Like, every race has to be about... Like, this is about President Bush. This is about the war in Iraq. This is about if you vote for a Republican congressman, you're basically voting for George Bush all over again. We needed to just go back and remember that there's also this massive thing driving the national news every day and driving public opinion every day. And it's not good for Republicans, and you should make them own it a little bit. And that's how Rom and his team started coaching their dozens of other candidates. They'd be like, look, your opponent is going to try to be like, George Bush has nothing to do with me. But don't let them get away with saying, like, all I do is just, you know, get up every day and go represent my district. Like, don't let them get away with that. That's their guy. Do you see that strategy working in this election, making everything about President Trump? I mean, it depends on where in the country you're talking about, and it's also way soon to know for sure. It is clear that... President Trump's election has galvanized the Democratic Party. It's clear that we're seeing it already have an effect at the ballot box in primaries and special elections since he took office. So I think that the short answer is yes, that is a winning um, approach, but with an asterisk because we've also seen the limits of making elections a a referendum on a president who's not on the ballot. Um, We 
and that works both ways. When uh, during the years of President Obama's uh, uh, presidency, uh, he couldn't help his um, uh, fellow Democrats in the Congress uh, win in the midterm cycles. He had abysmal midterm cycles. Uh, And, um, you know, I think that that's something that you have to consider as a distinct possibility this year as well, that voters aren't going to be voting about President Trump. They're going to be voting about the issues that are affecting them in their states and in their districts. And so there is an asterisk there. But we have already seen uh, we've already seen the impact of it. It's it's sort of undeniable, I think, that the the surge of involvement of the number of candidates, of women, um, of turnout, all reflects how galvanizing President Trump is to Democrats. Absolutely. I think one of the things people haven't focused on as much um, as as I would like about uh, Ocasio-Cortez's win is just how issues-based her campaign was. Um, if you look at the ads, she really is talking about health care and, and free tuition and um, increasing wages. And uh, it's very clear um, that she's not a big supporter of President Trump, but she didn't get out there and lead with let's get Trump out of there. Um, um, and I think that it's a, an approach that maybe some other candidates will have to take if they want to be successful as well. How are Republicans navigating the Trump issue? Like, is everyone just on the Trump train? You know, the only way to get reelected is to align yourself with this polarizing president? Or are there Republicans who are trying to kind of have it both ways? I, I was going to say, are we talking about Republicans retiring or running again, right? But you, you, when you asked about re-election, I think that clarified the question. Um, we're not seeing people who are running for re-election <laughs> criticize Trump. That That is not uh, what it's going to help you win. That's right. I mean, it, it, it's clear that the only playbook for Republican candidates in uh, both congressional and uh, gubernatorial elections is is to support President Trump. You do see some squirming. I was in Minnesota a couple of weeks ago writing about Tim Pawlenty, the former governor of Minnesota who's running for a third term this year. He's not a big fan of President Trump. He was one of the first people to uh, come out and uh, condemn him after the Access Hollywood video came out in October of 2016. He's an establishment Republican. He lobbied for the banks. Uh, He ran for president unsuccessfully in 2012. uh, And and he's a nice guy who traded on his sort of affability as governor of Minnesota. And uh, and it was almost painful uh, to listen to him sort of navigate why he supports President Trump and the job that he's doing. You can, you can sort of infer from his uh, spiel on the trail that he has to do that. You can't win as a Republican. He's in a primary battle. If he came out against Trump, I think he'd probably be done. Yet there was a rally in his state with President Trump a couple days after I was there, and uh, Pawlenty didn't go. So he's sort of straddling this interesting line where he has to support President Trump because he wants to win the Republican nomination, but he's also looking ahead to the November election in a state that is not red or blue, but purple. And um, he can't win with Republican votes alone in Minnesota. So he, if he embraces too closely, that'll alienate the more liberal voters in the Twin Cities area of Minnesota. So, I mean, that's a really great example of a candidate who shows you how powerful that party views Trump. It's the party of Trump now. It's sort of that's been adjudicated. We know that now. 
Do you think that there will be maybe a, a moderate shift there as we turn from primary season to November of Republicans who right now are aligning themselves wholly with, with Trump and then once it gets to uh, the end of the summer and beginning of the fall, trying to like get to those swing voters who are more uncomfortable with Trump? I think that there will be some moderation, but I also think that those candidates need to um, mobilize the Republican base to turn out in November. So that's the balance continues all the way through November. There's also the reality that President Trump doesn't like hearing people criticize him. So people are going to be cautious about what they say about this president on the campaign trail. I agree. I think one of the big differences um, that we're seeing in 2016 versus 2018 is how much energy was spent focusing on independent voters and uh, swing voters in 2016. 2018, people seem to be focused on turning out the base um, on on both sides because we know that uh, Hillary Clinton didn't turn out the base the way Obama did. We know that um, other races that have happened since then um, that could have been more effective for Republicans were not as successful as we've seen districts not have as high uh, Republican voter turnout as we did in 2016. I think an interesting possible point of conflict for some of these candidates won't be so much um, how they talk about Trump uh, as a, you know, as a person, uh, as an individual, but uh, the policies that are going to continue to flare up. I mean, the trade issue, the tariff issue is really flaring up in the country right now. And not just as a flashpoint for liberals. In fact, it's affecting uh, farmers and manufacturing workers. And we had the big news of Harley Davidson this week and, uh, you know, potentially moving jobs overseas. And those are are, uh, issues that are going to cause local candidates to squirm Republicans even more because it they will they will and my guess is that they will try to focus on the issue and to show that the principle that President Trump is pursuing is laudable for these reasons but we have to be careful because we've got our farmers that we have to work about or we've got our steel workers who we have to work about or whatever it is so we're all talking about a blue wave, um, but also there has been this discussion about, you know, a red wave, a red tsunami, um, that uh, that there could be a surge of very successful Republican candidates in the fall. What what would that wave look like? Who would make up that wave? And what are the chances that it will actually happen? Um, so I, th- I think that the polling tells us that a red tsunami is not as likely as other outcomes. I'm going to speak very cautiously uh, (laughs) because we never know. Um, I do think it's good for Trump no matter who's elected, if Republicans are elected. They've all embraced him. It's his party. And they and certainly the candidates who are running for election and re-election this year understand that. I mean, any new candidate out there on the Republican side is embracing Trump. So th- that's all to the good for him and his agenda, I think. I I mean, the, the polling suggests something else will happen than a red tsunami, whether it's a blue wave or a blue squeaker. Uh, you know, those are likelier outcomes. Yeah. I mean, there will be rare wins, but it won't be a tsunami based on the polling. I mean, if the polling can be trusted and regardless of how often it was criticized in 2016, it it was actually more reliable than I think a lot of the critics suggest. Um, It's not going to be a wave. 
it's if it is to the to the question if it is a wave what if the wave includes non-trump supporting republicans i don't know of any non-trump supporting republicans trying to win right now and if they reveal themselves trump will let you know quickly that they aren't on his team and you will lose i mean it's been fascinating how much trump has come out against republicans like uh, jeff flake and mark sanford who overwhelmingly vote for him so uh anybody help putting their hope and sending people to the Republican side of D.C. that'll reclaim the party away from Trump wouldn't be that wouldn't be a wise gamble. One other issue that I want to make sure that we talk about is gerrymandering. Um, That's a thing that we brought up during our 2010 episode. The idea that, you know, in because of redistricting after the 2010 census, 2012, 2014, 2016, Democrats were always at a disadvantage. Uh, Do you think that's going to be a pretty salient issue uh, for this election in terms of can Democrats in a lot of these districts actually win given the maps and what they look like and who lives there? To me, the short answer is no. I mean, that is uh, the big issue with gerrymandering and why there's so much criticism of it, primarily from the left. Uh, We don't hear much criticism about it from the right. Um, People don't think they have as big of a shot um, at putting candidates up who could uh, defeat conservatives and the conservative uh, voters. And so we saw... Uh, the rulings not too long ago in Pennsylvania where maps will be looking different pretty soon. And there will be, um, I think, if the left takes over the House, movement towards that direction for future um, elections pretty soon. How would it change Trump's second two years of this term if the House flipped this fall? I mean, do you think he would actually be impeached or it sounds like Nancy Pelosi is would not allow that to happen under her watch. I don't know if we can say that she wouldn't allow it to happen under her watch. I think what we know is that she would like people to not be talking about it right now in advance of the elections. I actually think that there's an extremely strong possibility that impeachment proceedings would begin if the Democrats take over the House. Uh, And that will... um, That could shape those two years. I mean, it's funny. It's hard to imagine a more acrimonious relationship, you know, between Trump and the Democrats. You know, he's blaming Democrats now for the border separation controversy uh, on the southern border. Uh, So I guess you could just say more so of that uh, if the Democrats are actually in charge. Um, And then, of course, we may see some results of the Mueller investigation. And that will tie in, of course, with any potential impeachment proceedings. I would guess that impeachment and the results of the Mueller investigation are highly likely to dominate uh, if the Democrats take over the House. I agree based on polling. I mean, the majority of Democrats want to see this president impeached. And so I certainly think that uh, the left will try to get some uh, policies passed, some success um, that they would have hoped they would have been able to had Clinton won, move that forward. But I don't know that they'll be able to get the numbers um, as a whole to make something actually happen. It, we're, we're all talking about um, not just them taking over the House, but we have to remember by the numbers. I mean, how, how much, how, how successful will they be? That will determine a lot of what they're able to do. So Justice Kennedy is resigning from the Supreme Court. What 
Do you think that could become a galvanizing issue, maybe not for House races, but for Senate races in terms of a, a kind of uh, symbol of why those elections matter, that it, that it might increase Absolutely. turnout? Absolutely. And in fact, I think that what's happened over the last uh, two years where the Republicans blocked uh, President Obama's appointment to the Supreme Court, which led to the ability of President Trump to appoint Neil Gorsuch in his first year in office, will um, will energize and perhaps empower Senate Democrats, should they take over on the Senate side, to block any nominee um, of, of Trump's. I mean, it it would be a lot harder to justify in the third year in office. Um, but, uh, you know, it, I don't know what the timing is of the of the resignation. But if it's soon, Trump's going to try to make that happen before the midterms. I guarantee it. Yeah, I certainly think he will do that. And um, he if he's not able to, uh, not only will uh, a replacement for Kennedy galvanize the left who remember what you know, not turning out in Obama's midterm did to them. I think it's also going to galvanize white evangelicals who are one of Trump's most loyal voting blocks who, uh, you know, many of them held their noses to vote for Trump, hoping they would deliver that he would deliver a Gorsuch. And he did. In addition to um, the, this week's um, uh, Supreme Court ruling related to the travel ban, one thing that fell under the radar was a ruling on abortion. Um, and so I think um, Trump, who has been called the most pro-life president um, in the last 20 years, um, will want to deliver to this block that's a huge part of his base. It's kind of interesting. It's kind of amazing to look at the the three big rulings that we all read about this week and how they all kind of... Um, speak to different constituencies of Trump's presidency. You have the ruling on the travel ban. You have the ruling on uh, what crisis crisis pregnancy centers are allowed to say to clients. And then the restriction on unions being allowed to um, charge non-members fees. That's like, think about all of the different constituencies that that's like a gift to. The evangelical Christians, um, folks who uh, want to toughen our border security and um, the business class. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a we are in a time where like demographics and identity are like controlling these elections like never before. And you see you see in those Supreme Court decisions why that appointment was so important and why Mitch McConnell went to the mat to hold off on that Obama appointment and and this is the reward and it's a huge reward for that party and its constituencies. There's been so much that I've learned throughout the course of reporting and writing this series about midterm elections. Stuff about partisanship and divisive lines inside of each party, about polarizing presidents and gerrymandering and how all of these things not only affect the midterms, but affect the powers of the president. And so I had just one more question for Amy and Eugene. So looking at the numbers, 
Democrats need 24 seats to win the House this fall. Um, in the past, in 2006, the last time that Democrats took the House, they only needed 15 seats. But then again, you have, you know, the 94 election where they needed 42 seats and they got it. Or Republicans needed 42 seats and they got it. What, what are the chances that this can actually happen for Democrats this fall? I think the chances are very strong. Um, remember that 23 of the 24 seats that they need could be pretty uh, attainable because they're districts that Hillary Clinton won in 2016. And those are the big battlegrounds that are playing out across the country this year. And they're in Southern California and they're in suburban Philadelphia and uh, you know the suburbs of Northern Virginia. They're 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 uh, they're in affluent, educated suburbs where Trump is less popular than in rural parts of America. And so I think it's entirely possible. And I think both sides of the aisle know that and are fighting for their lives. I don't think we see um, a level of comfort um, that you would uh, see if the president were more popular um, and more successful at getting his agenda moved forward. been How to Flip the House, a special audio miniseries from the Washington Post's Can He Do That podcast. If you haven't already listened, I'd encourage you to check out the three stories that preceded this episode, stories about the 1994, 2006, and 2010 midterm elections, told by the people who watched those elections unfold firsthand. You can find those other episodes at wapo.st slash howtofflipthehouse or on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever else that you get podcasts. This episode of How to Flip the House was produced by Carol Alderman, with editorial oversight from Jess Stahl. Ted Muldoon produced the prologue to this series and wrote the Can He Do That theme song. Kat Rudell Brooks designed the art for this series. Ruben Fischerbaum and Kazia Wall created the beautiful accompanying page for this miniseries, which again, you can see at wapo.st slash howtoflipthehouse. This series would not have been possible without the support of Mike Semmel and Victoria Benning. How to Flip the House was hosted by me, Martine Powers. And I'd just like to say, it's been an honor to work on this podcast for the last six months, telling stories about the presidency and about our government, that I hope have been insightful and interesting and hopefully sometimes thought-provoking. If you'd ever like to get in touch with me, feel free to reach out at my Twitter handle, at Martine Powers. That's at M-A-R-T-I-N-E-P-O-W-E-R-S. And my email is martine.powers at washpost.com. And feel free to leave a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else that you listen I promise you that we do read them closely, and over the course of my time working on this podcast, your comments have been enlightening and instructive, and often very heartening and edifying. So thank you, thank you for sharing your thoughts on the podcast, and for sharing your ears. It's been wonderful to have people listening to these stories, and it's been an honor to be able to share them. 